0: You guys are hardcore, and you want to know about deep learning and TensorFlow this morning. It's
1: running
0: off here. <clears throat> Amazing! All right, sorry about that. Okay, we're good to go. So, uh, congratulations to everybody who went to the party last night and, and last night and still has the stamina to to go through this uh, session this morning. Uh, my name is Julian. I'm a tech evangelist with AWS, and I focus on AI and machine learning. And I guess to uh, close Reinvent 2018 in style we have a hardcore session for you this morning. I, I will be joined by uh, Kevin and Andrew from uh, Advanced Microgrid Solutions. And I haven't seen all Red Van but I think this is probably the most hardcore one you'll see on Deep Learning this week. So, sorry if you have a bit of a headache. You, know, you still have time to grab a coffee, uh, and uh, hopefully we're gonna blow your mind this morning. So, uh, Who's using SageMaker today already? Who has looked at it? Okay, all right, thanks. So um, we'll go through a few SageMaker slides to make sure everybody in the room um, understands what SageMaker is and how it helps you solve your machine learning problems. Um, we'll talk about TensorFlow for, for a little bit as well. Um, and then I'll hand it over uh, to, um, to Kevin and Andrew who will explain the, the use case um, and, uh, and the, the deep learning model that they built uh, to forecast energy prices in real time. And they went extremely far, well, you'll see. And then I'll come back for a few minutes, share some resources, and then I guess we can go and uh, go back home and enjoy the rest of the weekend and try to recover from this crazy week, right? So a few, th- a few words about SageMaker. So SageMaker was launched at reInvent last year, and we announced tons of new features this year. Uh, so if you uh, if you're uh, using SageMaker today, make sure you catch up on all those uh, additional services and features uh, around SageMaker. But the basic um, the, the basic reason why SageMaker was built is because customers came to us saying machine learning is too difficult. Uh, it takes too much time to get from the business question, all the way to answering that question with a model in production. There are so many walls we need to blast through, from choosing an algo, to uh, training uh, on, on dedicated infrastructure, to uh, deploying and, and, and doing that all over again with a different model, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, to make this process faster, simpler, and, and just generally accessible to any developer, Uh, no matter what their uh, experience level in machine learning is, we build SageMaker. So SageMaker is a collection of modules, so to speak. Everything is driven by a a Python SDK. It's called a SageMaker SDK. You can find it on GitHub. And what this SDK does is it's going to help you um, orchestrate. It's going to help you drive your machine learning process. So starting from experimentation, okay, which is always the first thing you want to do. Uh, explore your data, do some pre-processing, some visualization, maybe some basic feature engineering, trying to figure out what that data, that data is and how you can start working with it. So to make that simple, we uh, provide fully managed instances called notebook instances. And these are EC2 instances that come pre-installed with uh, Jupyter notebooks, um, all the sample notebooks that uh, we've written um, plus, of course, all the deep learning libraries that you need, so uh, TensorFlow and everything else uh, is already installed. You have the uh, NVIDIA drivers pre-installed, uh, the, the CUDA environment pre-installed if you want to use GPU uh, uh, processing, et cetera. So, in a nutshell, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an off-the-shelf dev environment for machine learning engineers and, and data scientists. And then we also provide a collection of built-in algorithms. And these are uh, machine learning and deep learning algorithms that have been written uh, by Amazon and AWS, so, and they're being used as well by Amazon and AWS, so you can expect them to scale. And they're uh, just ready to go, right? So just select one of those algos, set some parameters, point at your data in Amazon S3, and train. So literally, you're, you do not write a single line of machine learning code, okay? And today we have 17 algos uh, going from typical problems like uh, linear regression, clustering, uh, PCA, etc., all the way to uh, advanced stuff like time series and anomaly detection, etc. Okay, you can you can see the full list on our website. We also provide built-in environments for uh, popular deep learning libraries like TensorFlow and Chainer and MXNet and PyTorch, um, and you can literally bring anything else. Okay, so if you use another library or if you have your uh, custom code for training. Um, No problem, okay? You can just build everything into a Docker container, and you can use it on SageMaker to train and and predict, okay? Then once you're happy, once you have figured out which algo you should use to solve that problem, you can train uh, literally with one API call on SageMaker, or one click, if you're a console person. But I'm guessing we're mostly API persons here. Uh, So, one API call. I fire up a training cluster. Um, distributed training is available out of the box, okay, so zero setup. So fire up that training cluster, fully managed by SageMaker, um, zero server to manage on your side. SageMaker will train uh, a model using the algo you selected, using the data you put in S3, and once the model is available, it gets saved back to S3, and the instances, the training instances, are terminated. Okay, so you stop paying. You never overpay for training with SageMaker. Um, You can also automatically tune the parameters for the training job. Um, It's called automatic model tuning or hyperparameter optimization. We'll get back to that. And it's a clever way, it's a machine learning way to figure out the optimal set of parameters for your training job. Okay, so no guessing around uh, using machine learning to optimize machine learning, right? I like that. And then once you're happy with the accuracy of your model, you can deploy it. And again, it's one API call to deploy to a fleet of web servers serving HTTPS-based predictions. Uh, auto-scaling if you would if like that, uh, in a similar fashion as uh, EC2 autoscaling. Or if you don't care for uh, HTTP predictions, you can also do batch transforms, okay? So you can grab data from uh, S3, uh, batch, predict it, and get your predictions back from S3 as well, okay? That's, uh, that's another way of doing it. So SageMaker has been launched about a year ago now. Uh, It's been extremely popular, like uh, Andy mentioned in the the keynote. Um, We have all kinds of customers. There isn't one specific type of customer. We have large enterprise customers like GE and Dow Jones and Thomson Reuters and Intuit. So people who have tons of uh, enterprise data, customer data and and they just use machine learning across the whole company to solve all kinds of business problems, um, and we have also obviously web and um, web players like uh, Hotels.com, Edmunds.com, Tinder. I wonder what they do with machine learning. Uh, no one's using it, so no one knows. Uh, yeah, Realtor.com, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, these companies they have mountains of uh, of user data and uh, navigation data, click data, swipe data, et cetera, et cetera. And you can, you can think of all kinds of applications where machine learning is important. OK, and SageMaker helps all of them train uh, and, and build, train, and deploy tens, hundreds of machine learning models uh, at scale. Um, because again, what SageMaker really does for you is make that uh, path from business question to model in production fast faster and simpler than it used to be. So, you can innovate faster, you have much more agility in your machine learning process. Okay, if you want to know more about those stories, uh, please go to the uh, SageMaker service page and you will see some some use cases. And I'm sure uh, we'll have plenty of SageMaker customers um, uh, speaking at Redvent this year. And the videos are being put online uh, uh, really quickly this year. So, some of them might already be online. So, Let's talk about TensorFlow for, for a minute. So, TensorFlow is, uh, is an open source library. Who's already using it today? All right, quite a few people, too. All right. So, it's an open source library, and it's fair to say it's probably the, the most popular library for deep learning uh, these days. Uh, the main API is in Python. Uh, there is some kind of support for all other languages, but really, you know, most people use Python. Um, it's quite easy to build, all, to build all kinds of network architectures with TensorFlow. I, um, it has uh, predefined APIs to build uh, quickly, uh, fully connected networks, convolutional neural networks, uh, LSTM uh, networks, and all kinds of other architectures. So you, know, you can quickly, in just a few API calls, you can quickly stack those layers and build, uh, build a network. Um, the, the initial model for TensorFlow is, uh, is uh, based on symbolic execution. So, symbolic execution is it's a complex word for something that's not so complex. Symbolic execution means you first define the, the network, the execution graph, okay? So, it's fully defined, and then you train it, okay? So, you have those two distinct phases. Define the network, the graph, okay, then it's frozen, and then you train it. Okay? And the fact that it's fully defined when you train allows you to run all kinds of optimizations for speed and memory, etc. You can run all those fancy graph optimization algos and, and get some speed up. Okay? The problem with symbolic execution is the graph is frozen during training. Right? It's, it's really the downside <laughs> to, the, to that. So, this means you cannot change the network, you can't change the graph while training. Okay, and for most applications, it's okay, but for some more advanced use cases, we actually want to maybe make the the network deeper as training uh, progresses or wider, or we want to inspect, uh, we want to stop training and look at weights and look at exactly what's going on. We we literally want to debug that uh, network just like we would debug code, right? And that's not possible with symbolic execution. So a few versions ago, TensorFlow introduced imperative execution, they also call it eager execution, which is really, uh, it's the opposite. Here, you just run code, okay? Imperative code is what you do when you write Python, Java, C++, okay, so no one knew you were actually running imperative code, but that's what we're all doing. <laughs> so now we can do the same thing for deep learning models. Okay? So we can define and train and, and, and inspect the model and, and change the model during execution. Okay? And this is available now as well, so you get those two modes. And last but not least, TensorFlow um, is complemented by a high-level API called Keras. Everybody, anybody using Keras? Okay, a few people. So Keras is a high-level API that sits on top of TensorFlow Fiano, uh, and uh, Apache MXNet now, and it's super user-friendly. It's my personal favorite, I have to say. Um, documentation is great. You can find tons of examples. They have a great blog, et cetera, et cetera. So it makes it really, really easy to build an experiment um, with deep learning models, okay, at the cost of performance probably. But, you know, it's so easy to use that you'd be, uh, you know, it would be a mistake not to try it. So... Actually, uh, you probably heard uh, Andy uh, mention that um, there are over 80% uh, over 80% of uh, uh, TensorFlow workloads are running on AWS. So, you know, there isn't there is a, a ton of TensorFlow workloads on AWS. So, it's also our responsibility to make sure um, you know, services like SageMaker and the Deep Learning AMI, etc., offer the best level of performance. And we spend quite a lot of time optimizing for that. So when we put the two together, um, what happens? So obviously, uh, TensorFlow is a first-class citizen on, on SageMaker. We have a built-in container for TensorFlow, so you can just bring your own TensorFlow code, throw it uh, at that container, and, and off you go. The container itself is open source, so you can uh, build it, uh, you can run it locally on your machine, you can customize it, push it back to Amazon and train with it on SageMaker if you like. Um, We support a bunch of TensorFlow versions, and we keep following the new ones, and we also have um, advanced features like uh, optimized builds for GPU and CPU, so the the version of TensorFlow that you run here is not the vanilla version. It's heavily optimized um, uh, to make the most of our CPU instances and GPU instances. Um, as I've mentioned, we support distributed training out of the box, zero setup. Okay, can just say, hey, I want to train on five instances, and SageMaker takes care of everything automatically. We support pipe mode. Pipe mode is a way to stream uh, huge data sets from S3 directly to your training instances, so there is no copying involved. So the benefit is you start training faster because you're not copying data to the training instances, and you can process infinitely large data sets. If you want to train on one petabyte, then fine. You know, SageMaker will stream that petabyte to your training instances, and it, it'll take a bit, <laughs> a bit of time, obviously, but you'll 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 get to the end. Okay, uh, you can use TensorBoard. TensorBoard is a visualization visualization tool. That's what to say, um, and uh, that shows you the the training metrics. That shows you uh, you can visualize the graph, and it can run directly on the notebook instance, and so you just uh, You just uh, point your browser uh, to port uh, 6006, if I remember correctly, and then TensorBoard is available. And um, uh, you can run Keras. Uh, I have another session where I show you how to uh, build a custom container for Keras. Uh, Maybe I'll I'll point to that at the end. And of course, you can do automatic model tuning so you can use hyperparameter optimization as well, okay? Um, so I wanna point out, I, I did another session earlier this week, so it's, it's, it's AIM401, okay? Uh, so it's the, uh, the original one, and it's a, it's a technical deep dive on all those, those topics, okay? So the session's gonna be on YouTube any time now, um, any minute now. Uh, so if you're interested in all those advanced technical features, this is the video to watch, okay? Uh, and there's a long demo of using Keras as well, okay? So AIM401 is the one, okay? Um, so, using Keras on SageMaker is also possible, like I said, and this is specifically important because this is what our friends uh, did here, and they're gonna talk about it. So, um, there are the Keras layers, so the tf.keras API is available in SageMaker. It's part of the, uh, of the native TensorFlow API. If you want to use the Keras library itself, which brings many more APIs, um, then you need to build a custom container. Okay, it's not really difficult. You write a simple Docker file, build a container, push it to ECR, and, and then use it just like you would use any other job. If you're interested in this, uh, this is the video I was uh, referring to. It's a full, uh, the full process, uh, full session on how to run Keras from scratch on, um, on SageMaker. Okay, building a custom container, etc. So, before we dive into... Uh, They're a crazy use case. I want to show you a simple example. And the simple example with with TensorFlow is this. So this is a a toy data set called MNIST. I'm sure you've seen this before. It's a a bunch of tiny images representing handwritten digits. And of course, the name of the game is to classify those images into the 10 classes from 0 to 9. And this is actually the full code. OK, there's there's not more than this. You could copy this, paste it, and run it. So it's quite compact. So, what do we do here? Import TensorFlow, grab the MNIST dataset, which is already split into training and testing. Uh, we just normalize the pixel values, okay? These are black and white images, so pixel values are zero to 255. We wanna normalize that to a float, uh, floating point value between zero and one. And then we build a fully connected network. That's what uh, Keras calls uh, sequential. We flatten the image to have a, a flat uh, vector as an input sample, and then we push that through a fully connected layer with 512 neurons, apply some dropout, which is a a regularization technique to combat uh, overfitting, and then we have the output layer with 10 neurons, okay? And we compile the model, uh, define the loss function, define the metrics, and train for 10 epochs, and then score, okay? So that's all there is to it, right? I mean, this is a simple, a fully connected network, and it gets probably to 90. Uh, I didn't run those numbers, but I would say probably 95 at least percent accuracy on this on this task. Okay, so the power of deep learning is is strong, right? Even with a few layers, you get you get a good accuracy. The last thing I want to mention is automatic model tuning, um, because this is an important part of uh, of the next use case. So, automatic model tuning is about finding the right set of hyperparameters, okay? So, in the case of deep learning, um, what should the learning rate be, and how many layers do I want, and how wide should those layers be, how many neurons do I want in there, et etc. Et okay, All kinds of parameters that are difficult to figure out. So, the first way to do it is manual search, AKA, I know what I'm doing, okay? Well, it's a sad fact of life that none of us know. Uh, knows what, what they're doing. So that doesn't really work. Okay, you can try 100 combinations. You know, you'll never know that you have the optimal one. So random search, uh, AKA spray and pray. That's my terminology for it. Um, just try to pick random sets of hyperparameters, hoping that if you train enough, right? If you train 100 times, 200 times, with 200 different combinations, maybe you'll hit the right spot, okay? Not really scientific. The third way is grid search, AKA X marks spot. So you start, it starts like random, just as random, okay? Pick maybe 10 or 100 combination of parameters, train, and then the assumption is there will be some area in there that is interesting, okay? That, where you have slightly higher accuracy. So you will zoom in on that part of the hyperparameter space and do it again, right? Zooming in, on that hotspot that seems to deliver high accuracy models. So as a matter of fact, this is painfully slow because you can train literally hundreds and hundreds of models, so it's expensive. And it's not intuitive, but actually random search works better, which is very disappointing, right? From an intellectual perspective. And then the best option is to use HPO, which uses machine learning optimization. So it trains a couple of models Okay. looks at the results that it got from the parameters that it picked at random initially, and then it applies machine learning optimization in order to select the next bunch of parameters. So it's an iterative process where you train, let's say, two models, optimize the results, pick two more sets of parameters, um, and then based on those four data points, optimize again, and then on the six, optimize again, on the eight, optimize again, etc., etc. And if you can't sleep tonight, uh, you can read about Gaussian process regression and Bayesian optimization. I recommend it. It works very well if you can't sleep. And, uh, and this is what SageMaker uses to quickly um, and efficiently deliver an optimal set of parameters. And it's so easy to set up. It would be a crime not to use it, right? And you don't need to know much about machine learning to use it. So I'll point you at the doc. You can figure it out in no time. But now it's time for, uh, for Kevin to join us. So please give him a warm welcome. And Andrew as well, of course. Thank you. Thank, thank you Julian. for joining us at Reinvent. Thanks. And uh, OK, hang on to your hats. This is going to be crazy, right? <laughs> okay. Good luck, guys. Yeah. Thank
2: you, Julian. Good morning, everybody. So, I'm Kevin Clifford, Product Manager at Advanced Microgrid Solutions, or AMS, and I'll be talking today about how we've used uh, AWS and SageMaker to deliver a key business objective. So, um, and then I'll bring up Andrew to to go through how we delivered on that. So, first, a little bit about our company, Uh, we were founded in 2013, we're based in San Francisco, And we're a technology-agnostic energy platform and services company that maximizes wholesale energy market revenues for both behind-the-meter and in front-of-the-meter energy assets. Raise a hand if you know exactly what that means. Okay, yeah, there's quite a bit of industry-specific terminology in there that I'll break down in just a moment. At a high level, we're the software layer that sits between physical energy assets and the various um, players in this space. So utilities, markets, retailers, as well as uh, trading desks. So first with energy markets, um, what is an energy market? Uh, Electricity is traded in regional wholesale markets where the operator is there to facilitate and oversee the sale and purchase of energy for a very specific geography. Um, And one of their primary goals in doing so is to make sure that supply exactly equals demand at all points in time. Uh, Failing to do so disrupts the physical power grid, and then an outcome could be widespread power outages. So a key part of this is that at all times, um, demand varies widely through time as there's uh, changes in behavior, changes in environmental factors like weather that are causing that to to go up and down um, somewhat in a volatile fashion. Uh, And it makes this all that much more difficult for the operator to procure the exact right amount of supply to hit that changing target. Also, recently, there's been increases in volatility in the supply side as there's more renewables or intermittent generators that are brought onto the grid. So it makes kind of matching those two up in time very challenging. Um, The supply side, if you look at the participant, their job is to come up with a bid, which is a pairing of price and quantity and to decide how much they want to sell at a given point in time. Um, The market operator then consumes all of those bids and then awards specific suppliers the right to generate In turn, they're paid for this generation at what's known as the market clearing price. And so this is the price set by the marginal unit used to meet that demand target. Shifting over to energy technologies, so there's a wide range of generators out there. Um, How they generate electricity differs. Um, So you have thermal generation, gas fire generation, you have renewables like wind and solar, you have hydroelectric dams, and you have a relatively new entrant, uh, battery energy storage. So while they generate in very different ways, their uh, cost to generate is also quite varied. So if you look at thermal generators, their cost is associated with the price of the gas they purchase to burn, to then uh, convert into electricity. On the other end of the spectrum, batteries, their cost to generate comes in the form of opportunity cost and weighing price arbitrage decisions and whether or not it's uh, more advantageous to charge or to discharge energy. So when you're considering this kind of at end of the spectrum, it's important to have a very accurate price forecast to understand your opportunity cost. And more than just an accurate price forecast, an encapsulation of the uncertainty on that forecast so you can weigh these decisions and make uh, profitable decisions over time. So coming to our use case, we're looking to optimize market participation for battery energy storage in Australia's national energy market. So why Australia? Well, the Australian national energy market is one of the largest in the world, uh, both in terms of volume and value. They serve nine million customers in five Eastern states. There's 200 terawatt hours traded, um, which totals to about $16.6 billion. Uh, The design of this market is that of a spot market where you can participate in nine different avenues over a 24 hour span at a five minute interval. Um, Only the next five minute interval though is binding. So you have every five minutes the opportunity to update your bid or to rebid with new information. So this makes this a very complex challenge and uh, when we think about batteries, it's perfect for this market design. Um, A use limited resource is perfect for creating and capturing value, but that's contingent upon accurate forecasts, one to meet the requirements of the market, but also to understand your opportunity cost and then make the correct decision. So to go into some of the operational challenges of this use case, dependent on the market, is let's use one. So if we focus on the 405 to 410 window and say you want to bid for that time, that market actually doesn't, or you have to supply a bid to that market 90 seconds before then. So at four o'clock, three minutes and 30 seconds, you have to put that market, or that bid into the market operator's hands. But in order to make that bid, you need to know what's going on between the current window, four o'clock to 405 that information isn't delivered until 30 seconds in. So now you only have 180 seconds to carry out all the necessary tasks to deliver a bid that would ultimately get awarded by the market. That includes forecasting the price for the upcoming trading intervals, determining optimal asset dispatch, um, constructing a competitive market bid, presenting that to a user, and then delivering electronically to the market operator. If we look at all the later steps, you really only get about 50 seconds to do that price forecast, and you're going to have to do it again in five minutes. So you have all these different data streams that are quite volatile, Um, they're changing in time, there's lots of different market participants who are entering and exiting the market as you go through longer periods, and so the trend is constantly changing. So it's an incredibly complex problem that requires a lot of uh, targeted data science. And with that, I wish Andrew luck in <laughs> developing and, and going through the, the solution to this complex <laughs> challenge. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so just to repeat, my name is Andrew
1: Martinez. I'm a data scientist at uh, Advanced Microgrid Solutions. And before going into the solution uh, that we ended up uh, doing, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, about the motivation, give a little bit more background on ter- in terms of why we wanted to develop this, this forecasting model. Uh, and Kevin talked about it as well. But the one thing you need to know about the AMO market, which is uh, unique among other energy markets, is that they actually provide their own uh, price forecast. And you'd think, okay, this is the market operator, though, so they should have the most information about what's going on in the system, both in terms of how everybody's bidding into the market, what is going on with the demand, uh, as well as all the technological constraints, so the transmission lines, the power flows. So that price forecast should be relatively good. But there's one flaw in that uh, price forecast in that it's dependent on the bidding behavior of all the market participants. So the only bid that is uh, binding is the bid that goes in for the next interval. And people can rebid every five minutes. So that means all of those future bids are maybe not representative of what they might bid when that time comes. Uh, But it means that we can learn from those bids and basically learn the bidding behavior of all the market participants and use that to come up with a, uh, basically a better price forecast. Um, So why did we go down the neural network route? So you can, again, because we've been talking about TensorFlow, we went down uh, this deep learning route. So why did we do that? One is it's a complex market, right? So kind of like trying to understand and trying to forecast uh, stock market prices, there's a lot of market dynamics. Uh, so there's not only seasonalities that you're uh, trying to incorporate and common exa- exogenous factors like weather, uh, there's also the, a number of other feature sets such as the network outages and neighboring market conditions that you want to include in your price forecast and you intuitively know have influence on uh, what the price forecast is gonna be, but you don't know how much those features are important and what the uh, correlation between those features are. And neural networks are very good at basically telling you which features are important and how they're related with each other. And the other thing is we wanted to build a model that could build with us, that could grow with us into the future. So as the market becomes more volatile, we wanted something that could dynamically pick up all of that new volatility. Uh, there's also a number of studies I'm showing two here uh, that look at using deep learning techniques um, that, that show promise compared to you know statistical methods or other uh, just machine learning you know boosted tree sort of algorithms and, and methods. So we you know invested the time in going down the neural neural network route. Um, so before getting into like the model and the meat of uh, what we built, uh, just a quick overview of our architecture. Uh, so starting the process, so the majority of our input data is coming from a third-party database, um, an MS SQL database, and the third party is basically uh, replicating the AMO data, or the AMO database in real time, so it's constantly updating. Uh, we have a job that goes out, pulls down all of the information, all the feature sets that we're interested in, Um, does some pre-processing on it, uh, and then pitches that to S3 uh, so that it can be used by all the other AWS services relatively easily. Uh, Then when we're going to do our uh, model training or model tuning, uh, we are using SageMaker. uh, And then we have, when we go to do the tuning job, we also have a connection to uh, DynamoDB. So we're able, again, when you start to build a lot of these models, you want to store some of the metadata in it so you know what version you're on, what com- code commit you're using, so that you can go back in time and say, okay, this forecast model at this particular time was using this in- input data, uh, this particular model version, so you can replicate and you can kind of understand what's going on there. And uh, so we made that connection. And then once the model has been trained and SageMaker has done its sort of its magic in determining what, was, what are the best hyperparameters to be using in our particular model, uh, we're deploying it, again, using SageMaker and then wrapping it uh, using Lambda uh, API gateway in Route 53 basically as like a microservice. So there's a, a static API or a static address that's serving API that we can basically hit saying, okay, give me the forecast at this particular time for this particular product. Uh, and it then in turn pulls in the data from... The live data from the MSQL database does some pre-processing on it, pitches that over to SageMaker, which does the inference, re- gets that inference back, does some post-processing on, on it again, and then uh, then display or you know sends the, the request back to us in a form that we're expecting. And then we're all doing. I don't know if you've used AWS Chalice before, but uh, it's a nice little framework to do this all of this orchestration and, and, and do this in, in Python. Um, so now getting into the actual model and what we built Uh, so uh, first design considerations so we knew that there's an existing market model and we knew that we could learn or existing market prices uh, that are being uh, presented by the, the market operator and we knew we could learn deviations from that um But it wasn't just important for us to understand the point estimations of what those future prices could be, but also understand the uncertainty around those future prices. Because it's, and I'll get into this uh, later as well, and it'll become more apparent as to why. Uh, And then lastly, and this comes into sort of our bidding and our our, our bidding strategy, is we wanted to create a number of uh, scenarios from that uh, forecast so that we could run uh, a stochastic optimization problem. And again, I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. So first step, start easy, right? This is the most basic model you can, you can do. Uh, our, and we're calling this our benchmark model. So take the existing uh, market forecast model of market forecast prices and basically learn deviations from it. So again, three layer network, very simple. The input layer, you can think of it, you know, it's, it's the time series data the output layer is now uh, our predicted prices and you're learning against what the actual prices were. So again, in Keras, you know, this is very, very simple, you know, three layer and sort of showing the code there. So this gets at the first sort of modeling design consideration, but it doesn't get at the next piece, which is uncertainty. Uh, so how do we want, how do we model uncertainty in this particular uh, framework? So let's first figure out, okay, what's the new what's the output dimension that we need to we need to have, right? So we want to have both the point estimations, but we also have to want to have forecasts for what the different possible like quantiles could be, or quantile forecasts could be. So let's start with just modifying the output layer. So again, we're adding a dimensionality to the output layer corresponding to the quantiles that we're trying to model. So the output Now the output looks something like, okay, we're modeling 300 points in the future, as well as maybe five different quantiles. So it's a 300 by five uh, uh, output shape. So now we have the output dimensions correct, but now we need to tell the model how to actually predict what the quantiles are gonna be. Uh, And this means that you have to modify your loss function. Uh, And you can do this by using what's called an asymmetric or a pinball uh, loss function conditional to the quantile. Uh, So what this means is, uh, let's run through an example. Uh, Let's say we're trying to uh, capture the 90th quantile forecast, Uh, right? So the pinball loss function is basically skewing the error, or not skewing the error, skewing the loss. So let's say the error was 10. because of this pinball loss function, how it works is that now the loss seen by that 10 error is one. So you're basically skewing it to over prediction. And then on the other side, if there's a large negative error, so let's say the error was negative 10, the loss would be much greater. So again, it basically is learning to skew the results into an upper quantile and learning that, that higher quantile uh, prediction. And again, so this, you can't do this in Keras, so you can write a, uh, uh, basically using TensorFlow, uh, a custom loss function here, just using a maximization function, and then a computed weighted uh, loss function as well on top of that. So what does that give us? Uh, So walking through the graph, the blue line here represents the actual prices. So this is the price that actually materializes uh, in the market. Uh, The green line, which is a little bit faint, but you can kind of see it, is what the market forecast predicted at, this, at, at time equals zero. And then the gray lines represent our forecast, our quantile forecast. So we're looking at five different quantiles, 10, 30, 50, 70, 90%. So there's a couple of things you can glean from this, and this is why it becomes very powerful and apparent why we were interested in doing this quantile forecast is, one, it tells us when we have a higher uh, likelihood of the price not being volatile. Right? So if the quantiles are closely uh, clustered, then we know that the price is likely not going to be spiking during that time. Whereas if the quantiles became more separated, then there is a likelihood of this price spike occurring. So we can use that information in our bidding uh, strategy to basically determine, okay, maybe we do want to reserve power to uh, so we can discharge later, or maybe we want to discharge now because nothing else is going to, nothing, we're certain that nothing else is going to occur in the future. So the last part of this is taking that quantile, those quantile results is running uh, and coming up with a number, and this is our last model design uh, specification, is that we wanted to come up with uh, scenarios that we could run through a stochastic optimization problem. Uh, And the thing here is that you could just Randomly sample from that distribution, but the issue is is that there 's a covariance between both temporally as well as between the different products that you're, that you're trying you 're trying to predict. so what we did was we using the test uh, data set, we basically derived both the, the temporal as well as the cross product um, covariance terms so what you 're seeing in the graph here is essentially the cro- the covariance matrix for, uh, I think this is the energy market product. And what you can see is that, you know, defined by the, the, the diagonal line, is that at a given point in time, t equals zero, it's highly correlated, and there's, a, you know, strong covariance with the t minus one as well as t plus one. So, and when you are sampling from this uh, distribution, you want to keep that relationship. And NumPy, I'm just going to point this out, NumPy has this really... Great feature to do a multivariate normal so it allows you to basically input this covariance matrix and quickly sample from it so this takes us you know a matter of seconds to come up with you know 10 50 different realistic looking stochastic um, scenarios which we can then use in a stochastic optimization problem so that was you know the benchmark model so it meets our like general requirements, so it improves upon uh, the market forecast, and it was actually it was kind of surprising when we originally put this model in place and saw that it was, you know, well, the the existing model is pretty bad, their existing prices are pretty bad, but it, we got pretty good results with this simple model. The limitations were as we started to add more and more features to it, it became prone to overfitting. Um, so the next steps were to develop a more robust model that was less dependent on regularization methods. Um, and sort of use intuition to feature and target dependencies to reduce model, uh, to reduce model connectivity. So that led us into convolutional uh, neural networks. So uh, I don't know if most of you are familiar, but like uh, convolutional neural networks are primarily used, or they use in time series uh, classification, but primarily in image recognition, right? Because they're good at recognizing particular patterns in uh, a spatial set but that pattern recognition can also be used in time series data. Um, And in particular, with dilated uh, convolutional neural networks, you get this nice um, uh, property that you can basically model a a large receptive field. Um, So the receptive field, meaning the uh, connection of your input layer to a single output node, grows exponentially with the number of layers and your dilation rate. So this allows you to have memory. So similar to like an LSTM model, you have memory of what is going on uh, in the past or in like the a-causal scenario also in, in the future. So you have those connections. And because if it's a convolutional network, um, all of the weights, the weights are shared, right? So you have less uh, learned parameters, which helps reduce um, uh, overfitting because you have less parameters to learn. Uh, so as an example, just running through this, you know, the, the top one is the a-causal scenario with three layers, a kernel size of three and a dilation rate of three, so you can sort of see how uh, the inputs are related to the particular output. Uh, and then the, a, the, the causal scenario is instead of looking and including points in the future, you're just including points in the, fa- in the past. Um, and then typically uh, these uh, convolutional stacks, or these, these convolutional layers are typically stacked with residual connections, and that's done primarily for, uh, to, to, in the, to uh, facilitate better learning. Uh, and there's some papers on exactly why. Okay, so as we were building out the model, so we started this benchmark model, and then we went down this convolutional route. As we started building into the complexity, that became very apparent to us, and it becomes apparent to most people who are doing these sort of deep learning models, is that the number of hyperparameters that exist, it just kind of explodes. You're just like, okay, how many layers should I, how many layers should I build? Uh, I don't know, let's parameterize that. Uh, how many, fil- what should the filter size be? Uh, I don't know, let's parameterize that. So we ended up basically making, creating this very parameterized model, such that instead of basically relying on us to create and define those hyperparameter points, we're leaving that up to the machine. So we're leaving that up to, in this case, SageMaker to do its magic and do its Bayesian optimization. Um, so again, the, these are the, the parameters that are the hyperparameters that we chose. And um, uh, so looking at our hyperparameter tuning jobs. So on the graph that I'm showing here. The x-axis is all of the different parameters that we are, uh, that are are, are all of our hyperparameters. And then the uh, y-axis is the absolute value of those. So it's a little skewed because uh, some of the value, like some of the uh, hyperparameters are categorical or they're uh, ratios, so uh, sort of ignore the height. But the thing that you can gather from this particular graph is that, it's fairly non-intuitive. There doesn't seem to be some particular path that gives you the best results. Uh, and the way that, to read this is that each one of those uh, sort of lines represents one of our training jobs. And then the more fuchsia and thicker, I don't know why we did that, but uh, is, are the better job. It, is, it has lower loss associated with it. So this is representing the 36 lines for the 36 jobs. We ran these, you know, three in parallel. Each job takes about two hours to train. So that's 72 training hours. Um, and we were able to get away with using relatively small instance. Actually, I think the smallest machine learning instance, GPU instance. Uh, so this, if you kind of do the cost analysis here, that cost us about $100 to do, right? And the astonishing part is that we saw a 20% difference between the lowest loss and the highest lost between these jobs. So when, that might not seem like a lot, but when you're talking about using this to then inform a multi-million dollar asset what to do, it pays for itself relatively quickly. It's a pretty low sales pitch to uh, the people who actually have to pay the AWS bill. So So the accuracy, so getting into uh, how well we did. Uh, So again, following common modeling validation uh, practices, we split the data up into... uh, Three different chronologically separated groups the training test the training validation uh, and test set so validation is where you're doing all of your upper parameter tuning and then your test set is independent from all of that and where you're doing your final comparison so for this particular case study looking at the South Australian energy prices with the 24-hour uh, look-ahead period we are seeing a 68% reduction in the mean absolute error against the existing market forecast. And this is a little skewed because the existing market forecast is pretty bad and also has, predicts a lot more like price spikes. So it kind of skews that particular metric. So a better metric to use would be the mean absolute, median absolute error, uh, which, you know, doesn't, uh, takes out some of those outliers and where we're still seeing a 24% reduction. So this by itself is, 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 is a great win for us and showed us that, you know, building out this model, we can do a lot better than the existing price. And we can now, and especially when we're just looking at the point estimates here, but when you also include the quantile forecast, it gives us a lot more information that we can use to inform our bidding strategy. So key takeaways. um, So without prior experience using deep learning tools, uh, we deployed the benchmark model, that simple uh, three-layer network, uh, using, you know, SageMaker and TensorFlow within a matter of weeks. Um, then we basically continued to build on that over the next couple of months to basically, in you know, looking at literature, come up with and build on, build to basically a state-of-the-art temporally dilated uh, convolutional uh, neural network and it meet all of our modeling criteria, or our, our, our acceptance criteria, in that it provided us both with the point forecast as well as the quantile forecasts as well and um, realistic scenarios uh, that we could use in stochastic optimization. So recommendations start simple. Uh, again, there's examples uh, that you can basically pull from, uh, and it can get you up and running very quickly Uh, Keras again, is a powerful, high-level library that allows you to do this, again, very quickly, and it's very approachable. Um, And then lastly, as you start to build complexity into your models, start to parameterize, right? Try to take the art out of deep learning architecture and let tuning sort of discover the best solutions for you. Um, So, uh, again, before I sort of pass this back over, uh, and sort of open the floor for questions. I wanted to give a big shout out to Corey Noon, who's actually the uh, first author on a lot of this work, and this is primarily his brainchild, but he's on a vacation, on a well deserved vacation right now in Thailand, so you're stuck with me instead of him stalking. Uh, and then, shameless plug, we are hiring data scientists and de- software developers, so if you are intelligent, engaged, and want to you know, work for a clean tech startup in San Francisco, please look us up and reach out. Uh, thank you. Them right. <laughs> Thanks.
0: So, I told you, right? I told you. These guys, are, these guys are awesome. This is really... Some of those slides probably can keep you busy for a few weeks, right? <laughs> Trying to get to the... Yeah? I know, I know they're still keeping me busy. <laughs> but that, this is awesome. This is exactly the kind of content that, uh, you know, we want to see. It's a, it's a deep dive session. So, again, yeah. congratulations. So, just a few resources to get you started. Um, TensorFlow and Keras have extensive websites, tutorials, documentation, you, you, you can get started. If you're really, really new to this, I would re- really recommend you start with Keras, right, which is really the, uh, the approachable one, as you say, and uh, it, you can, it, within a, an hour or two, you're already running stuff and learning, right, so this is the, the, really the, the, the entry point I recommend. Uh, obviously, the, yeah, the notebook samples, I cannot agree more. Uh, these are uh, a great resource to uh, get you started with SageMaker and see how you can scale and tune your jobs really easily. Uh, the SDK that I mentioned as well is on GitHub. And if you, if you like this stuff, you know, if you want to read more about it, um, I have a blog on Medium where I post a, a lot of uh, articles and tutorials about deep learning and SageMaker. And, uh, that's, that's, probably, uh, that's probably more interesting content for you. Um, so please don't forget to rate the session in the app, and uh, I want to thank you again for showing up on Friday morning, uh, closing uh, reInvent in style with us, hopefully. And I want to thank again uh, Andrew <laughs> and Kevin for showing up and delivering <laughs> this great use case. Thank you very much.